All right. Um, okay, so we, we like to start off this class with a little bit of um, kind of recent science and then um, contemplation. So last week we talked about the James Webb Space Telescope, and we kind of looked at some of the pictures that have come back from this over the last year. So today I just want to open by looking at something new that's happened uh, this week. So this might not look like much, um, but I want to tell you a little bit about what, what we're looking at here. So if you see this in the headlines, you'll see something like um, the, the scientists have um, discovered organic molecules at the most distant point in the universe so far, the most distant galaxy. So this, uh, and they'll talk about this, they've discovered organic molecules in a galaxy 12 billion light years away. So what that means is carbon uh, molecules, complex carbon molecules have been found. Now that doesn't mean, you know, um, uh, alien life or anything like that, but it is interesting in terms of what it says about how our universe was set up for life and the things that would sustain life and support life. So that's kind of an interesting discovery. Another thing that I think is interesting about this is actually what we're looking at here. So this is called, uh, this is something called gravitational lensing. And it's a situation where we had, um, for a long time, we didn't realize there was a galaxy back there because there was another galaxy in front of it. And so you would think, well, that galaxy in front of it keeps us from seeing the galaxy behind it. But actually, because of the way that gravity works, um, something else happens. And uh, someone has called this nature's magnifying glass. The immense gravitational power of the galaxy in front has actually acted as a, a magnifying glass to the galaxy behind it so that we can see farther than we would have otherwise. That's what we're looking at here. And this is kind of a description of how it works. The red galaxy behind gets magnified by the, the uh, gravitational force field of the blue galaxy so that we can see both of them at once. And I think this is really interesting because it's um, something that Einstein's work helped us discover. It's a natural part of the cosmos that allows us to see farther and deeper than maybe we would have thought possible. It's interesting to find these things in nature where it almost seems like it's set up to allow us to investigate and discover things that previously would have seemed out of reach. So, we're gonna, uh, given that, we're going to start with a uh, reading on this. And, Daniel, do you want to describe what we're going to do here? So this we're going to do, do a responsive reading, and uh, I will read the part that's in white, and then there will be a part later that's in blue, and that will be for the group to read. So, it's a responsive reading. You read the blue parts. Okay? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. All right. We're going to open uh, today with a, a question we're going to throw to the group. How has God revealed himself? Okay. 
Nature. Nature. Who said that? Okay. Okay. Good. What else? Through the Bible. Through the Bible? Yeah. What else? Prophets. Prophets, yeah. Tell me real reveals himself through us. Okay. He reveals himself through us, yeah. What else? And a burning bush. Yeah, that was an interesting one. That was a cho choice. Huh? Okay. Anything else? Yeah. Connection on a daily basis. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spiritual um, connection to God. Can you say more about that? Yeah. What, what do you mean connection to Him on a daily basis? Uh, he gave us the Holy Spirit inside of us, and the. Uh, while he's not human and his first language is in English, he does uh, lead us. Romans says, and then they're led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And so we say, God, I need wisdom in this situation. And James says, ask for wisdom. And so you, over time, kind of get a sense of he's with me and he guides me and I take time to help him. Anything else? Any other answers? Friendships. Friendships. The Catholics and Anglicans would say through the church itself. Okay, I like that. Yeah, um, and maybe even specific activities of the church itself, right? Like we might talk about communion or something like this, right? Um, yeah. Anything? Anything else? Does that? Um, do those ways that God reveals Himself? Does that feel like it reveals a lot about Him? Or, like, are we left with a lot of, of questions and, and uh, emptiness? What are you? Yes and yes. Yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> Both. Yeah. Yeah. Mystery and and revelation kind of going together there, right? Anything else? Any other thoughts? Okay. Let's see. Yeah. God reveals itself from um, how we feel about our loved ones. So okay. often I think like. The way I might feel about my children or something, that's how God feels about me. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I like that. Um, there's an analogy. When we begin to do something, we can kind of like roll back and see how God did that for us, right? Like when we act in love towards other people, we can begin to understand in a deeper way how God might act towards us. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, okay, so some of the things that, that have been mentioned... Uh, we might try to group them into categories. And um, so if we were to pick out two categories, um, we might use these terms, general revelation and special revelation. Um, so does anyone, is anyone familiar with these terms? Does anyone uh, uh, want to? To venture a definition of them for me. Okay. So this is how I would think of them. These are terms used in Christian tradition theology. I would think of general revelation as something that is available just to everyone. Right? God has acted and it's available to everyone no matter who they are, no matter where they are. Maybe even everything. Right? It's available no matter where you are in the cosmos, perhaps. Even. Um, and then special revelation is something that emerges from a specific relationship. Right? 
emerges in a specific context, a specific culture, a specific moment, right? The burning bush meant something to Moses that maybe it wouldn't have meant to somebody in a different place and time, right? Um, and to understand what was said there, there was a dialogue, um, and, and Moses understands a calling from that, right? That's a specific thing. Not everyone in the world has had an experience with a burning bush, and if you did have an experience with a burning bush, it would probably tell you something different than it said to Moses, right? There's something very specific about that. Um, and, and so uh, we talked about Scripture, right? Scripture emerges in the context of the people of God, the people of Israel, um, and their relationship with God, right? And, and the revelations <laughs> to the prophets and so forth. And this gets formed out of that relationship. And so when we look at Scripture, we think about that context, we say, you know, what was their culture when they wrote these words? What language was it in, right? Like Hebrew or Greek or something like that. We first have to ask, where did this come from? What was the nature of the relationship and the context and so forth? With general revelation, it tends to be a little bit different because we all have access to it. We talked about nature. There's some other things here that fall into this category. Daniel, what have you written down over there? Uh, just basically your definitions. Okay. So the, these are these are just these are um, different way different categories that we might talk about God's revelation in, and um, they they how you think about these categories it's it's um, it differs at different places in the Christian tradition. That we'll think about these as like is this a hard and fast division or is there is it kind of a um, nebulous interaction between these things. Um, but I want to suggest that there's actually um, two names that we call God that kind of rise above many of the other terms we use that kind of highlight these, uh, these two different um, experiences, these two different revelations of God. And uh, does anyone um, know how the Apostles' Creed starts? Creator. Okay, you guys, have, yeah, it's, it's there, okay, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, right? Uh, the Nicene Creed expands this a little bit. They felt there was a few little footnotes they needed to put in there. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, right? So God is a big-time creator, uh, even even beyond the visible uh, spectrum, even beyond what we know, right? So there's two terms here, right? Father and creator. And we might think of father as relational, right? And we might think of creator as having this kind of general um, extent. And I want to suggest that creator actually carries a lot of weight in the Christian tradition and in the biblical tradition, so much so that it almost maybe obscures our whole view. Like, we almost forget it's there because it's so large, it's so big of an idea. But how does Scripture begin, right? Genesis 1, God is creator. This is the idea. And so, what does that mean? What is the significance of that? So I want to um, be provocative in here, and I want to um, suggest that if God is creator, then creation is revelation. If God is creator who gave attention and time and love and passion to this work of creation as depicted 
in Scripture as depicted in Genesis, that, you know, all these things, then we have to understand that creation, in some respect, reveals God. Reveals who God is. Reveals God's will and God's wisdom. And I don't think I'm making this up. I think this is what the Bible says very adamantly all through it. And we're going to look at some of that. But first, I want to um, scandalize everyone even more because this is this class needs more controversy. And uh, I want to talk about the... <laughs> Uh, Michelangelo's David. So I apologize for the uh, non-Fried Hardeman approved version of this, uh, but I'll move I'll move along to the the uh, appropriate uh, censored version um, that that would fly in a Fried Hardeman art class. So um, so this is so think about this. This is one of the um, most historic, well-known pieces of art. That exists, right? And this um, was unveiled in the early 1500s. And um, this is something that Michelangelo spent years on. He spent years getting this commission. He spent years working on this. Um, the, the statue or the marble that, um, that this was carved from was called the Giant. It was a large block that the, the city um, was trying to find someone to do something with. And so he took on this commission to turn the giant into David. And this is the first um, colossal marble uh, statue since ancient times. Right? So for centuries and millennia, no one had created something like this. And so Michelangelo comes along and he, he works on this and he works on it and finally he's ready to reveal it. Right? And it is revealed to um, incredible acclaim, right? In contemporary times and now, right? We still think about this statue. We still recognize it. It says something about um, humanity, right? It says something about uh, this character in this story. So imagine that you were there at the moment this was unveiled. You were, you were invited to the debut of this statue where everyone was going to see it for the first time. And so the, the tapestry, the tarps are pulled back, whatever, and this is exposed and everyone, you know, applauds and, and um, yay. And then you are a VIP and so you are invited to in, go directly to a conversation with Michelangelo um, and ask him anything that you want to ask about about his process, about this work, about what led to this, about the, the, the perception and the perspective that formulated this work of art in his mind. And so you run into this meeting with him, and you sit down and you say, so tell me about your hobbies. Forget the art. I want to get to know the real you. Let me, let me, tell, let me hear about the person, right? Tell me about how you're, what do you like to do on a day-to-day -day basis? That conversation, I think, would be ridiculous. And it would be ridiculous because the idea that getting to know the person is somehow separate from understanding what they put into the art. We understand there's something very wrong about this. He put years of his life, he worked to understand and see the human form in a way that he could create this. Like, 
the, the process that went into this was immense. It would take a lifetime to understand how he got to this point. Right? To understand what he put into this. To understand him, you would want to understand the work. You would want to ask about the work. An artist reveals themselves in their creation. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing when they're expressing um, and creating and, and, uh, and so forth. So that's, that's the idea that I want to um, uh, meditate on here for a bit. If God is creator, then creation is revelation. So I want to look at some scriptures that talk about this. So last week we talked about Psalm 19, and we read these first four verses. So I'm going to read this, and then we'll go a little bit further here. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. The honey from the honeycomb. So if you're like me, you might feel like somewhere in this passage we had a change of subject. Right, we started off talking about the heavens declaring the glory of God. They are proclaiming knowledge. They are revealing God's knowledge and wisdom. They are evangelists. Right? They're words to the ends of the world. And then we talk about um, the sun, and we talk about it in a kind of cosmology that is not our own, right? We don't think about the sun in this precise way, so this might strike us a little bit odd. And then he goes to the law of the Lord. Sounds like ethics. It sounds like maybe the law of Moses, right? The laws that guide us. So what's the connection between these things? Right? It seems like the psalmist has changed the topic. And I want to suggest that the psalmist has not changed the topic. The, the point here is that God has created the universe to reveal his will and his knowledge. One of the ways that this happens is that he has guided, he has put paths in the universe to create systems and processes that cultivate life. Right? Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The sun gives light and life and warmth to the earth so that life can thrive. And those same paths, that same guidance, those same laws of nature, so to speak, are the laws, ultimately, or are part of the laws or are connected to the laws that guide us in our lives towards wisdom and light and life. The psalmist sees these things as one. They are the will, the action, the revelation of God. Mike, are you saying that there's a correlation or a correspondence between 
what we could call physics and ethics and morality? Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not um, simplistic, right? It's maybe complicated and complex, but I think that the psalmist, and we'll look at some other scriptures, they are saying there is a connection in that they, um, they emerge from a life-giving, wise God, right? So there's a connection between laws of nature, laws of physics, and laws um, for human life. Yeah, well, I think we all probably follow ethics in that, right? Yeah. It's, uh, are things that I interact with, but mm -hmm. you can apply all of that, I think, to physics laws. Oh, uh, yeah. That's what, he, that's what he's talking about, I could argue, right? I normally wouldn't think that way, but... Yeah, I think, I, I think that they are... We have div divided them in a strong way. I don't think the psalmist is seeing these as divided. The, the wisdom that guides the sun is the wisdom that, when we are paying attention, guides us in, in paths of righteousness. So, the law of the Lord, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, these are our ethics. And these last bit, the decrees, um, sorry, the fear. Fear of the Lord. Yeah. Change up a little is this bit. Is this last bit? Is this wisdom? Uh, maybe so, yeah. So speaking of, I'm going to jump ahead to um, Proverbs. <laughs> Proverbs actually leans on this idea as well. So uh, Proverbs 8 has this, uh, this wisdom chapter where wisdom is personified and wisdom speaks. Right? So at the beginning of the chapter, does not wisdom call out, does not understanding raise her voice at the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gate leading into the city. At the entrance, she cries aloud. We're going to jump forward a few verses, and this is wisdom speaking. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be, when there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills I was given birth, before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Well, this chapter, if you notice, this passage, um, it, it starts off telling us that wisdom was with God when he was creating the world, right? And, and what's this saying? It's saying God created the world in and with wisdom. Um, and then... Uh, it goes through all of these things that kind of like establish the universe. And wisdom says, I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Right? Wisdom is delighting in God's creation 
because God's creation is the manifestation of wisdom itself. Right? God is using wisdom to build and construct the world, and wisdom delights in what God has done. And so then we get this pivot, right? What should you do then? Now that you understand this, now that you understand that the world is built in, in wisdom, live likewise. Live in wisdom yourself. Follow the paths of wisdom in your own life. A path from this move from God as the creator to here's how we should then live. Okay, that's, yeah. A cool metaphor there is how if you look at the physical world, when things go out, outside the normal structure, it can cause or wreak havoc. Like yeah. when it talked about the waters not overstepping their bounds, right. but... You know, if there's a tsunami or flood, that's very problematic. Right. Or if the earth was tilted just slightly off axis, it would yeah. cause all kinds of problems. Yeah. And then when we step out of bounds of, of right living, mm -hmm. it causes problems. Yeah, that sounds very some like the sort of thing that you would hear in the in the book of Proverbs. Yeah. If there's a similar sort of idea. Yeah. I guess I always thought of wisdom as Jesus. Yeah, so the early church thinks this way, right? So they look at this passage where wisdom is with God, and they say, you know, something like this is getting at like the idea of, of, of the pre-incarnate Christ. And that's a weird thing for us, maybe, but early church fathers like did draw a connection here. Um, because what does Jesus do? In some sense, Jesus is acting as the voice of wisdom crying in the streets, like going, you know, going about, this kind of thing. Yeah. But if you go back to verse 1, yeah. it says it was this God's first creation. Yeah, yeah. Which it, is the, the teaching of Arius. Right. And so the, we don't, probably will not want to make too strong of a uh, identification. Um, and uh, well, there's a there's there's a lot of theology there. I'm, I I I think it's. JB asked us to do a theology. Class. That's right. Get with it. That's right. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. So I, I'm going to get way, way down out of the clouds and get to something really um, a practical like version of this. You might have um, heard uh, in a folk song something like this. Right. There's the ant and the grasshopper. There's that kind of a proverb. So proverbs. Um, like, does this in a very concrete way, right? If you're not living right, go to the ant, you sluggard, right? <laughs> Consider its ways and be wise. So if you have failed to see the wisdom of God in the construction of the cosmos, well, look down, like, it's there in the ants, it's there in the, the dirt, it's there in all the other things of creation. You can learn something from this, right? Um, and so, yeah, Proverbs thinks of this, very practically, there are some, some real lessons you can learn. Now, so that's Old Testament, right? So you might think, so Jesus does a lot of like tension and pushing back on things that we you know, think of as, as being revealed in the Old Testament. So there's all that like kind of like does this kind of idea carry forward? So actually Jesus does um, expand on, on this kind of thought. And if you look at his, um, his teachings... They're doing the same sort of thing. He's doing Proverbs in his own 
kind of key in his own style. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. So he's looking at creation the same way Proverbs was and drawing lessons from it. And he's not saying, you know, the, the ant thing is wrong or whatever. He's like, yes, look at that. And then also look at this and look at this. There are many parts of creation to look at, to learn from. I think um, one of the most profound examples of this is actually in Matthew 5. Jesus says, um, this is one of Jesus' most distinctive teachings. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Very distinctive teaching of Jesus. How does he explain it? How does he defend it? What does he base it on? He says that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So he is doing what Psalm 19 was doing, right? Like the sun gives warmth to all life. This reveals the wisdom and the, the knowledge of God. Jesus is saying, look at that. Look at creation. Understand the kind of wisdom and the kind of character and the kind of nature that God has to create like this. And then imitate that. Be children of that. Right, so Jesus connects these things, the Creator and Father. And, um, and I think this is profound. Moving from, we're going to watch the ant, we're going to watch the, the sparrow, we're going to watch the, the flowers, we're going to watch the sun, and he's actually saying, look at all those things, and then think about what kind of God created them, and think about how you can live out that character in your own life. So, um, we'll go through a few more uh, things here. Uh, Paul uh, is really big into this idea. Um, so, Romans 1, uh, 20, uh, people are pretty familiar with this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So this is, you know, part of an argument Paul is making in Romans 1, but it's not just here that he makes it. Acts 14, I think, is interesting. When he, he and uh, I think Barnabas are encountering a kind of crazed mob, maybe. He says, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go his own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So this is what he's saying. As he's evangelizing people, he's not just starting with, um, with Scripture or anything like this. He's starting with something he assumes they should already know. God has given his testimony in having constructed the world and the universe in this way so that life can thrive. Right, so pay attention to this testimony and understand the things that I'm about to tell you about the living God. Right? Um, just briefly touch on this. For Colossians 1, um, 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So Christ is involved in creation, according to Paul. Right? So something about um, like creation, the wisdom that God used to create the world, is in some sense coming from or through Christ. It has something to do with Christ. And so um, there's a lot of theology we could get stuck in there, but I'll move on. Um, because I, I want to suggest that this, is, this idea of what um, it means to say that God is a creator has been incredibly powerful through Christian history and was understood in a deep way at uh, the beginning of the scientific revolution. And so this is something you might have heard, a phrase from Kepler, a uh, famous astronomer. He says, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. He's seeking to understand the ways, the wisdom of God, and to think in those same ways. Yeah. So this is the, the, the two-year-old question that mm-hmm. we've all got to experience, and that's the why. Mm. There has to be, you know, so if you talk about God created, well then yeah. it, it may not even be a question that we have really the capability to ask, right? Mm-hmm. But there has to be a why. He revealed himself why. He sent Jesus through. Right. So there's, there's, yeah. there's a why in this, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think it's based upon relationship, but then it brings you back to well, why? You know, yeah. so that whole that whole thing of trying, and, and I think this is a, a a great quote of trying to understand God. So I'm kind of thinking His thoughts, but right. and I think we all may come to that question mm-hmm. with different views, and they may all be right, or they may all be wrong. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember how. Paul says this in in Acts, um, but essentially God set up things so that people would would search for Him and perhaps find Him. Right. So there's there's a intention there to create a kind of curiosity, create um, a sort of question that then drives in this direction of seeking out to understand the wisdom and knowledge of God. Um, yeah, yeah. So we're um, we're almost out of time. I, I want to um, uh, just ma- make a couple points and maybe read out a few quotes here. But the the thing that I want to point out here is that the special revelation points to the general revelation, even as we anticipate in faith that the general revelation points to the special revelation. Right. So Scripture points to the universe. Christ points to creation. These things are connected in the minds of the, the authors of Scripture. And I think we should um, we should take that seriously. So um, maybe expanding a little bit more on on some of this. Um, uh, so Kepler wanted to be a priest um, and instead became an astronomer. He said, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else, of the glory of God. He's thinking about this in terms of how um, how we glorify God. Um, the laws of nature are within the grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them 
like creating us after his own image so that we could share in his thoughts. Uh, it is a right, yes, a duty to search in a cautious manner for the numbers, sizes, and weights, the norms for everything God has created. For he himself has let man take part in the knowledge of these things. For these secrets are not of the kind whose research should be forbidden. Rather, they are set before our eyes like a mirror, so that by examining them we observe to some extent the goodness and the wisdom of the Creator. Um, that's Kepler, and I, I want to give uh, Boyle here. Uh, Boyle is um, uh, he, he's a prominent scientist um, in the scientific revolution. Discovering to others the perfections of God displayed in the creatures is a more acceptable act of religion than the burning of sacrifices or perfumes upon his altars. That might sound like Boyle is kind of down on religion, but that's not the case. He's what we would call an evangelical. He writes a book about how science um, strengthens faith. He founds the Boyle lectures which talk about science and faith for decades. He is a committed Christian and he understands that this kind of work is to bring glory to God and is, to, is a kind of worship to God. And I would suggest that these people are pulling from that kind of biblical idea. And it was part of the Reformation itself. So Martin Luther says, uh, We are presently living in the dawn of the age to come, for we are beginning to acquire once again a knowledge of the creatures that we lost through Adam's fall. Now we can look at the creatures much more correctly. We begin by the grace of God to recognize his majestic works and wonders, even within the little blossoms, when we reflect how mighty and good God is. Therefore, we praise and glorify him and thank him. We recognize the might of his word and his creatures, how powerful it is. They had the idea that something that had been lost to Christianity was this emphasis on exploring and praising God for the wisdom and creation. Uh, so I'll just stop there. And um, any last thoughts, questions? comments. Next week I want to talk about the image of God and how that plays into this. We heard a little bit about it. Yeah, any last comments or questions? It strikes me it's like these scientists of their day I think about it, how those comments would play today. Mm. It's like a scientist wouldn't be caught dead on NPR <laughs> saying something like Sure. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I have a comment about that. Yeah, you go. Yeah, I find it, and I think a lot of that, them maybe talking that way, I, I, if I'm correct, I don't know if I am, a lot of, there was a lot of nature worship back then, pagan worship, yeah. and he's trying, maybe they're trying to distinguish themselves from that yeah. pagan that nature worship that yeah. they are, you can, you can, <clears throat> Respect nature and still be a believer. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. There's a. Maybe uh, that was before that. There's an. Well, certainly in the Bible, like there's an interesting dichotomy between like the idea of um, looking at creation at, to reveal the will of God and also, um, you know, praising pieces of wood and so forth. Uh, yeah. Well, I think to kind of add on to that, I think some of that potentially is. Uh, not as much science distancing itself from the church, but I think some of it is the church pushing science yeah. out of it, right? That there's, yeah, that, that is scientific knowledge, you know, for a long time was viewed, you know, as viewed as, well, that's different. That's a different right. type of knowledge and understanding of God than right. 
theological and, and religious understanding, and so that's wrong or different, or if there's any sort of kind of tension between the two. Right. Right. So I think it's it's been an active exclusion. Right. Of, of yeah. I think there's there's something to that. Um, there is a as, as I was trying to show with these quotes, there is a uh, an era in which um, science and a revolution in science is seen as part of a reformation in religion. It's how we are getting back to the the more honest and truthful practice of our religion. It's part of that. And then somewhere along the line, those things divide, right? So that's the question. I wanted to start with, like, what does Scripture actually give us? What does early scientific revolution kind of uh, conceive? And then how does that start to diverge? And how do we put those things back together. That's kind of where I want to go over the course of this. But aren't they also writing and thinking in basically the pre-modern era, so the division? And now we're sitting in the post-modern era reconsidering that moment. Maybe those guys weren't as, like, the, the gap here is just... Yeah, we've... Yeah, we have a huge gap of, of conception and all, all kinds of stuff, right? So this is uh, like four to five hundred years ago, and... Um, they are launching a new era in world history, whether or not they quite know of it. And, yeah, we live on the other side of that and saying, wait, some of that played out really well and some of it didn't play out so, well, so great. So how do, we, how do we re-look at that and rediscover what, how things should go? Yeah. Speaking of wisdom, mm-hmm. um, Daniel and Micah as a, as a shepherd, I just want to applaud the, the wisdom of this class. Um, one of the issues, and I think maybe Blake spoke to this, is that for whatever reason, Christianity and science are seen to be at different poles. Um, and that's a real stumbling block that Mm-hmm. And I just think this whole theme, this intersection of cosmos and logos, I think for the, the church for the next hundred years is going to start at this intersection of faith and science. And as Christians, we need to get it, we need to understand it, we need to see how this can make us naturally be more evangelical. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we're just sort of drifting apart, yeah. kind of speaking to our own tribe. But yeah. this, 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 this whole area of faith and science, I think, is very good. So I just thank you both for doing it. Thank you. That's a good place to end. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, uh, everyone. Thanks for your comments and questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well done.